heritage learners are not monitoring their linguistic production to the same extent as second language learners, right? They're interacting with families to talk about, you know, take out the garbage, do this, what did, are you going to eat? Those types of conversations going on at home. Parents are not really engaging, oh, you didn't use the subjunctive. So I want to say that their default is not to engage with language forms in the way that second language learners do because that's what they're used to in their learning. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Julio Torres joins us from the University of California, Irvine, to enlighten us on how language instruction affects heritage speakers. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to have Julio Torres with us today. Dr. Torres is an associate professor of applied linguistics and multilingualism at the University of California, Irvine. He gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on the effects of instruction on heritage language learners, and we will extend our conversation about this topic on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Julio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah. So your talk was really interesting and we had some good discussions. Before we dive into the topic of heritage learners, could you share with our audience a little bit about you, your educational background and your research interests? Yeah, so I um, <clears throat> am an applied linguist by training, um, especially in second language acquisition, and I did my doctoral work at Georgetown University. And um, so, yeah, my interest is looking at acquisition, heritage language acquisition, second language acquisition, bilingualism, um, and topics related right to those areas. Um, so, yeah, my background, I first, I got into the field, I'll share this real quickly, as a teacher. So I first mm. was a teacher for six years. I taught high school Spanish. I taught a, oh, year, cool. I taught a year French um, as well. And um, so I, my, my, first my interest was in literature, and I wanted to become a literary critic and, and all. Uh, but then I started teaching, and I really be, became fascinated with language learning and how mm -hmm. students were um, learning a language. And I, I came across research from second language acquisition when I was renewing. I was department chair at the school mm -hmm. district, and we were renewing curriculum. And I realized when I came across these studies, I'm like, I don't understand what these studies are about, yeah. right? And they're supposed to inform me about curriculum um, design. So that totally shifted what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, so I, some people think I became crazy and right <laughs> to do a doctorate, <laughs> you have to be somewhat crazy perhaps. And yeah, so that took me to do um, graduate um, um, work in this area. Um, but also, I still do a lot of practice because even though I don't teach language anymore, right, I direct a language program, the language program at UCI, and I work with future professors. Mm. Um, our graduate students, our PhD students of literature. So my part of my task is to train them in pedagogy, and I love that component of the job because I get to use my experience in the classroom with them. That's wonderful. So we've had the pleasure of enjoying your talk uh, on effects of instruction on heritage language learners. Could you give us a quick summary of the talk for our listeners? 
Yeah. So basically, my work, um, I've been interested in examining how um, heritage learners' prior language experience, and I define that as their experiences acquiring the language, right, in the community, at home home, and how when they come to the classroom, unlike second language learners who basically come to us with a blank slate, right? Heritage speakers bring this, um, these linguistic resources, experiences with them um, in using the heritage language at home or in their community. So my research has focused on what does that mean when they are in the classroom setting and we expose them to instruction, right? And how does that, um, how does that combination or that interaction have, um, how does it have an effect on their learning outcomes? Um, so basically, I, that's the big question that I try to understand in my work. And I look at it through the lens of task-based language teaching, um, which is, a, 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 as I mentioned, an educational framework for language learning in which we use tasks as the main unit for creating curriculum, for creating assessments. So, um, so that's been, um, and what I, I show that we're finding is that that prior language experience, I hope that was clear, right, does have an effect on how mm -hmm. they respond to instruction, right? And that we need to consider different variables, whether that is um, the modality of how we assess them, right? Because they are more, they're used to using the language in oral communication, perhaps less in written communication. Mm -hmm. So we saw that that can have an effect and that can alter the effects of instruction to certain degrees. Um, so yeah, I hope that, that kind of summarized there. Yeah, actually, one thing that you brought up in your talk as you were describing um, or presenting the, the results that was really interesting to me was um, that the heritage language learners um, didn't self-repair in face-to-face um, contexts, mm -hmm. but they did more so when they were um, engaged in, in like typing, chatting. Um, I thought that was so, so interesting. Do you have a hunch of why that is? Yeah, so, um, so I think for in the first place, so when we look at um, the effects of interaction mode, right, so whether mm -hmm. learners are interacting in face-to-face -face or learners are interacting in computer chat, so even with second language learners, what we see from the literature is that they uh, will um, pay more attention to linguistic forms through chat mode because those right if we are reading what we're typing right or um what, mm -hmm. whatever we're chatting about it becomes more salient to us right mm. so it seems that for second language learners right th there might be an advantage in further processing these forms when they see them and they're reading them in the um, um chat box um so what was interesting is that for for heritage learners, that was even more important and more critical because, again, um, heritage learners are not monitoring their linguistic production to the same extent as mm -hmm. second language learners, right? Yeah. So, um, so the face-to-face -face condition, again, it relates to their prior language experience using the language at home or in their community, right? They're interacting with families to talk about, you know, take out the garbage, do this, what did, are you going to eat? Did you do your homework, right? Those types of conversations going on at home, right? Parents are not really, right, engaging, oh, you didn't use the subjunctive there or you shouldn't. <laughs> that, right? uh, I don't think we have time. There's time for that, right? So, so again, so they are used to using the language in this authentic community mm -hmm. Way. So what was inter so what's interesting is that yeah, when they're communicating face to face, they were not paying attention. Their default. So I want to say that their default is not to in 
engage with language forms in the way that second language learners do, because that's what they're used sure. to in their learning. But what was kind of nice is that, again, that chat log and interacting in um, computer chat, again, seems to be some also beneficial for mm-hmm. heritage learners in order to be able to notice what they're mm-hmm what they're talking about and noticing these language forms. So in the paper, I say that it it would be a nice follow-up to follow up on that um, and to see how that links to learning, whether or not what they're self-repairing in the chat box, really we test them later and see how much they retain from Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. um, as well. So yeah, I was surprised because there were none, zero in the face-to-face. So that was sort of a drastic um, finding there. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Did you also look at recasts or or like error correction between the two heritage speakers? Um, yes. So we did look at, so in the, um, in the presentation I showed the table, we did look at corrected feedback. However, there were not as many um, episodes and we did not find anything that was um, significant or different okay. um, for that. But we did code for that as well. Um, so yeah, so the question is why perhaps we did not find many of those. Um, but in some, what I will say, remembering the data, is that um, a lot of times the heritage learners would correct each other or the second language learner and not even offer an explanation, right? Sure. So they would. So we were coding corrected feedback episodes because I was interested to see if they were engaged in some type of metalinguistic explanation for the mm-hmm. corrected feedback, but not. They would correct. Oh, this is this recast it and move on. But okay. while we didn't find any differences across pair type, right, okay. whether the heritage learner was interacting with another heritage learner, whether the heritage learner was interacting with a second language learner, or even across face-to-face or computer chat. Huh. So, but that is a good question to follow up. Yeah. Yeah. With. Mm-hmm. So I think um, you, you just mentioned that what likely happens with the heritage speakers is that they're so used to utilizing the language in a, in a real and natural context. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so interesting that you're approaching this from a, from a task-based um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what actually makes a good task within the confines of the classroom for a heritage learner? Like, how can you ensure that whatever they do when they utilize the language is is meaningful and and helps them in their path toward higher proficiency? Yeah. So I think the first step, and which is part of the task-based language teaching model, is that you need to create tasks based on a needs analysis, right, based on the goals and the needs of the students. So I often tell teachers um, 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 and instructors that um, don't be too concerned um, with language linguistic structures right away, uh, I would prioritize um, examining what are the goals and interests of the students? Why are they learning? How are they using the language in their community, right? Because if we know that students are are invested, right, and the activities that we design in the task that we design, then what we see is that motivation is such a strong um, variable, right, that is going to drive them, hopefully, to engage more with the language. So I'm less concerned about what linguistic structures and more concerned about the types of tasks that are appropriate and that really um, align with their interests and goals. Now, that being said, of course, teachers might say, well, that's great, mm-hmm. but I have a curriculum to cover and next yeah. week we have to cover double object pronouns. And um, that's great, Julio, but this is my reality, right? <laughs> so, um, so, which I totally understand. Um, I mean, I'm now in the ivory tower, if you want to call it that, but yeah. I was a high school teacher 
for six years. Um, so yeah, the reality is that you can also create what we call focus tasks. So focus tasks are tasks that you create following the same steps, but with um, with the goal to ho- so that the students can have an opportunity to use the target form that they're being taught in the classroom, right? So, um, so there are ways to do that um, in that, yes, it's matching the goals, their learning needs, but also, um, um, you can design tasks in a way in order to hopefully elicit, right, mm-hmm. um, the target form. Yeah. Now, that being said, I'll end with this, that in TBLT, we're not too concerned, right? We want the students to rely on their own linguistic resources, right? So many times students, uh, what we see when I observe my graduate students doing task-based um, teaching in the classroom, sometimes they're disappointed because the students did not use the target mm-hmm. form that they hoped that they were going to use and just happens. Right? And that can be a couple things. They can be the design of the task. They're not linguistically ready for a particular structure sure. and so forth. But then the t- what, as instructors, we need to focus on the task-based methodology, what happens after the task, and then how do you, you know, you can have learners repeat the task mm-hmm. and go over the mistakes. And why didn't we use this target structure or this target structure would have been appropriate here. Now let's do the task again, right? So there's a lot that you can do with task-based methodology in order to um, help out with that. But I think the number one goal is um, conducting a needs analysis to see what are the interests, what are the goals, and what are the needs of the students. Great. Thank you. What can educators do to integrate heritage learners in a classroom with non-heritage learners? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that is challenging, um, as we know. It's Mm. challenging to have second language learners um, in itself, right, because not all of them, right, just because you teach, um, say, German 101, it doesn't mean that, or German 102, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that all of them are at the same level. Mm. So I think what, what I think instructors, first of all, they need to be aware of the needs of heritage language learners. They need to be aware of their abilities. They need to be aware of their needs, of their goals as well. And I would say Many times, right, in terms of learning goals, heritage and second language learners might be the same, right? I don't think, right, they might have similar goals to learn the language. They might go want to study abroad. They might, right, want to do these things. Heritage learners, of course, may have other more personal reasons, right, like family ties and so forth. Um, But I think when I talk today about their prior language experience is keeping those variables in mind when you're designing tasks, right? So if you design type focus tasks in which um, you want them to use a particular structure, um, what needs to happen is you need to sort of differentiate, right? And my colleague, Maria Carrera, um, has done a lot of right, work on differentiation, um, differentiated instruction with heritage um, second language learners. It's sort of how to differentiate and... Um, as far as trying to meet the needs of each type of learner. And sometimes that may require the heritage learner working with another heritage learner. Sometimes that requires L2 learner working with an L2 learner. But if we can design activities or tasks, whatever pedagogical model you're using, um, that hopefully both learners can benefit from each other, Mm -hmm. that might be... um, a good way to think about it. So I think, and it's a lot more work, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I think the issue is to really think about your students, what they bring into the classroom, and sort of, um, right, tweaking things. I don't think um, you have to do these extraordinary activities and these very different activities, mm-hmm. perhaps taking components of a task. So for example, if a task requires students to write, maybe not 
other group is going to speak doing the same task instead of writing. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of differentiating. Um, You know, I I can think of an example. So if you have a task where you want students to brainstorm before they engage in the task, perhaps the brainstorming for heritage learners can be in the oral modality, whereas for second language learners can be in the written modality, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When we're brainstorming, we want learners to activate their cognitive, their linguistic resources. So we know for heritage learners, it's going to be easier to activate those in oral mode, right? And the second language learners in written mode. So that's something very small that you can tweak. Okay, this activity, um, um, you know, um, heritage learners, you know, my heritage peeps, you know, I want you to record this. Um, My second language learners, um, you can write and so forth. So, Thinking about all these dynamics, but yeah, it, it is um, it is quite the challenge. But I think what's important is being aware, right, of the student profile that mm-hmm. you're getting in your classroom. Yeah, yeah. So it all goes back to that needs assessment that you're suggesting. Exactly. And I think that's going to be so important, regardless of whether you have oh yeah true beginners or or heritage mm-hmm. learners. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you are working on a co-edited volume about heritage learners in Spanish. Is Mm -hmm. there something similar that you're working on in English? Or what are, like, other resources that um, teachers and practitioners can look to to learn more about the the research, but also maybe some practical applications? Yeah, so, yeah, this edited volume, um, which is coming out hopefully next year, um, Rutledge Brett, it's progressing, yay, um, right? It's an edit volume that I'm co-editing with my esteemed colleague, um, Diego Pascuali Cabo, who's at the University of Florida. And um, this is, um, the, the volume is divided into three sections. The first section is looking at linguistic um, um, features of heritage learners, of what research has shown. The second part, looking at different pedagogical models. So, for example, we'll have task-based teaching, we'll have... Um, a multi-literacies pedagogy, um, and so forth. And then the third section is looking at program, pr- programmatic issues. Um, and this will be, it's a volume that we decided to do in Spanish because we don't have anything written in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So that will be a, a resource. But of course, if you don't speak Spanish, that's not going to help your thoughts <laughs> um, uh, and so forth. But um, I think one of the things I'm working with a colleague, we're currently working on a book proposal on doing task-based, this will be in English, um, doing task-based language teaching with heritage learners. So that edited volume is a, a constellation of approaches, right? Um, but this project will be just focused on task-based teaching with heritage language learners. And in that, um, what we're hoping to do is, one, summarize the research, right, that we have thus far, some of the studies that I, some of my own research that I described today um, in today's presentation, but also provide really practical and task across different heritage languages. So we're thinking about having Spanish, Korean, hmm. Japanese, Russian, right? Cool. Yeah. So that teachers from all over, they can have, they, it's accessible to them. Uh, and sort of then um, ending with some recommendations and tips of what can work. And again, so in the chapter that we have in um, the volume, the edited volume that's coming out, basically what my colleague and I, who's, her name is Melissa Burrow at Florida State University, what we're doing is taking the chapter we wrote there and we thought, oh, this will be great. And we will want to explode and expand it into a whole book. Nice. Right? Um, and so forth. But our goal is to make it accessible for instructors and teachers. Mm. So there is some research. We don't want to focus too much on that. But I think it's important that our pedagogical decisions are guided by some scholarship, right? Sure. Um, but the goal is to really focus on, on the practical component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So 
What final piece of advice do you have for instructors and for students to best support heritage learners inside and outside the classroom? Mm-hmm. I think, um, and this came out in the discussion, came up in the in the discussion that we had earlier. <clears throat> I think the, the final thing is supporting their bilingual experience and validating their experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. Um, I often say that heritage speakers come with can come with trauma, traumas mm-hmm. into the classroom because the, the, the heritage language is so personal, right? Um, they have so many experiences and we can think of extreme cases now, right? So like we think about Syrian refugees who are, for example, settling in Germany. There's work being done in Germany, right? Yep. With um, Syrian refugees, there's a community in Texas. And I was thinking, wow, as I'm, I've been reading some work and hearing people talk about the experience, I'm like, wow, what type of needs analysis do you have to do for these individuals, right? Because this is such an, a traumatic experience mm-hmm. um, that they bring, um, um, in, they're bringing into the classroom, right? Yeah. And that's obviously very extreme, but there are variations of these traumas, right, that learners bring with them into the classroom. So I, I feel that you need to really work on that. You really need to know your students. You really know to really to know the communities from where they're coming, right? And these experiences, because this is what I find um, often when I work with teachers, some teachers say, well, they don't want to listen to me. They don't want to correct their mistakes. Other people say they're too afraid to use the language in class. They're so intimidated. Mm-hmm. This, that linguistic insecurity is really strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I have found in our program, when we do the work with students in terms of acknowledging um, the type of trauma that they can bring, right, um, helping them validate the experience, um, that they understand what are the goals of instruction, right? This mm-hmm. shouldn't be a secret. We share in our program with students why we do what we do. Yep. It's not a secret, the methodology. It's not a secret, the research, right? So um, we find that when students understand what's going on, you're validating their experience, that their bilingual experience is completely normal, right? Um, they open up and they are very receptive um, to learners. So I would say that you can have the best methodology. And if you're not addressing your students' needs, acknowledging and validating bilingual experiences, it may not be even effective. So I think that would be my, my last piece of advice. Get to know your students. Get to know the communities from where they come from. Be respectful. Listen to them, right? Um, I, for example, now live in Southern California. I'm Puerto Rican. That's my background. So um, it's a very different experience. The immigration, immigrant experience is mm-hmm. not something to share. So I do not assume that I understand just because Mm -hmm. I'm also Latinx and my students are as well, right? So I'm learning a lot from my students, from their experience, and they also are teaching me a lot. Mm -hmm. So I think it's building relationships at the end. If you build these relationships with students, right? Um, I this I... It's not doing a PhD that I discovered this. This is from my years of teaching high school, right? Um, If you build that relationship with students, um, they basically will do anything for you, right, in the classroom, and they're engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Julio, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, you love, you are learning. Hmm. What is that word? So I am going to, so I was a French, French is my third language, mm-hmm. and I started studying French in high school, I majored in French as well, and my favorite word I remember, I love this, it was couscous, um, I remember <laughs> we were talking 
about um, 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 French-speaking um, Africa, yeah. right? French countries in Africa, and we learned about the word couscous, and I fell in love with that word, um, and it's like one of my favorite words. Um, it's probably my favorite word in French, so I will say couscous today. Yeah. That's I love it, and I also actually don't only love the word. I love, yes. I love the food. I mean, it yes. is. Quite so delicious. Yes, I, yes. You realize this is, of course, two weeks in a row where the favorite word has been a French food. So that's... <laughs> oh, oh well, there's a pattern. Yeah, maybe. I mean, let's see what happens next week. We'll I'm, just... I'm, less, I'm less attached to the French theme than I am to the food theme. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. So let's keep the food theme going. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Julio. Thank you for having me. This was an honor. Thank you. Next week, you'll hear from Professor Beth Lyon, Director of Cornell's Farmworker Legal Assistance Clinic, and Victor Flores, JD candidate and Spanish instructor in our Languages Across the Curriculum initiative. Tune in to hear all about these programs and their impact on our community. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.